in, in honor of Robert being gone for the whole weekend with the kids and not being here for church, I asked Robert if he would teach tonight. And so we're blessed with the uh, teaching of Robert tonight. The Lord has given him a, a good word to share with us all. And so um, our fearless youth leader is here to teach for us. Uh, thank you, Mike. And I would, uh, from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to thank all of you guys for, for your prayers, for your support, like that last uh, slide up there indicated. We're, we're very thankful, and it was a great time, uh, a lot of fun, but also uh, a lot of spiritual growth during that time. And um, I, I know each and every one of those kids came away with something, and um, I'm, just, I'm just thankful for the opportunity. I told, uh, I told everybody that uh, bef before we went, I said, we'll see how this goes, and... and it, it depending, we'll see if we go again. And um, we, we, on our way home, we were saying, well, how are we going to do it next year? And wh what things are we going to do different? And what things... So uh, we are planning, Lord willing, to head out there uh, next year. And uh, it, it'll, it'll be uh, even better because I'm, I'm sure we'll have a bigger group. We have a lot of uh, the, the kids that are uh, turning... Uh, of age to to be able to go next year so uh looking forward to that so uh again a big blessing uh that was to to be able to do that and, and uh my my first experience doing something like that and uh it was a good one so again thank you church for that and um you guys ready for vbs coming up i'm ready I'm ready for vbs exactly so um today we're going to be studying out of acts chapter four so if you guys can open your bibles and we'll be reading out of there. And uh, the message that I have for you is titled Rebellion. And uh, let's just go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll get started. Dear God, we thank you for this time that you have gathered your saints together to be able to uh, sing praises to you, Lord, to worship you. Uh, we thank you for that time, Lord. And uh, we thank you for this, this group of uh, of your children that are in this in this room in this building uh here for you father god uh we, we pray that you would bless the study as we open up your word as we read from it lord uh that you would speak to us that the words that i speak up here would be uh, nothing but your truth father god and uh, again we thank you lord we thank you for uh what happened this weekend with the youth lord and we pray that uh they just continue lord uh, to, to study your word, to be faithful to it, uh, that we continue to pour into them, Lord, uh, to disciple them and to raise them up, Lord, because they are our next generation, Father God. Uh, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, Acts chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22. The message is called rebellion, and uh, a rebellion can be defined as opposition to one who is in authority. Those who participate in a rebellion are known as rebels. In our text, we'll read about two men who are considered to be rebels, and the rebellion that they participate in is called Christianity. And the act of rebellion for which they have been detained, it's something that's landed many people in hot water with the powers, of be, powers that be over the course of 2,000 years. The act of rebellion I refer to is preaching Christ. So for a little bit of context for our study, uh, we have Peter and John, and they had just come off of healing a, a crippled beggar in Jesus' name. 
And when that happened, it drew the attention of all the people around them, right? And Peter, seeing a crowd gather, takes advantage of that opportunity. And he begins to explain to the curious men and women how the man was healed. Peter says, Jesus did it. And not only that, though, he didn't stop there. According to Peter, everyone must repent of their sins. They must believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God, the Savior of the world. He was crucified by sinful men, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, and he lives forevermore. So the, the religious leaders, they catch wind of what Peter is preaching, and they accost him and, and John, and they start flexing their muscle. The priests and the Sadducees seize the two men, and they throw them into prison for the night. So then the next day, what we have is Peter and John, they're brought before an even more distinguished bunch of gentlemen, right? We have the high priests, we have various other rulers and elders, and uh, if, you, if you look closely, it's some of these guys are the same individuals that Jesus encountered after he was arrested. So if you think that this intimidated Peter and John, like it would have intimidated me probably if I was there, uh, you would be mistaken. The disciples are asked, by what power was this man healed? And the question, they already knew, right? They already knew what, what they had been saying. But the question was designed to give these guys an opportunity to recant. They wanted them to say, oh, yeah, you know what? Never mind. We didn't heal the guy in Jesus' name. What, what was I thinking? I, I didn't really mean that. Uh, you know what? Just, just don't throw me back into that prison with all the, the, the rats and, and you know, being in the chains and all that. We, we don't like that, right? So in other words... The rebels were given a chance to surrender. But did they? You know the story, you know they didn't, right? Peter answers them point blank. Jesus, I proclaim Jesus, and I don't care what you do to me, for I cannot deny Jesus. In other words, for Peter, for John, this was no surrender, no retreat at all. So what happens next is detailed in, in the text that we're going to be reading, and we have the ball in the court of those high and mighty men. So as we consider this passage, uh, may we understand that what happens to Peter and John is also applicable to us. As we proclaim Jesus, we put ourselves at odds with the enemies of God, including those with power and authority. Also, as we proclaim Jesus, our message falls on unfriendly ears, and the enemies of God will lash, lash back with threats. And finally, may we see that despite the threats, we must defy the enemies of God and continue to boldly proclaim Jesus. So with that, let's read from Acts chapter 4, and it's going to be verses 13 through 22. It says, When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that, had been, that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. 
So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So when two opposing sides meet in some sort of dispute or disagreement, we say that swords have crossed. In the passage that we just read, we have the rebels Peter and John on one side, and on the other side, we have the Jewish leadership, which includes uh, rulers, elders, scribes. We have Annas the high priest. We have Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. So very impressive men we have before us. Uh, so as we reread uh, verses 15 and 16, we'll note that these guys who seem to have the advantage here are, are scrambling a little bit. It says in 15 and 16, after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So almost invariably, if we proclaim Jesus loud enough, conflict will result. Swords will cross. And proclaiming, in proclaiming Jesus, our volume should always be set to the loudest, right? In fact, our lives, our lives should be a loudspeaker so that not just our words proclaim Jesus, but everything we do. Like Paul, like Paul famously wrote, to live is Christ. Therefore, our Christianity should not be a secret. It should not be a whisper. We shouldn't go about dressed in camouflage to try to blend in with the world. On the contrary, we do as Jesus instructed. We are supposed to stand out. We are supposed to shine as lights. We are to act like a city on a hill for all to behold. We're to be as a bright lamp, unobscured by a basket. And when we live like this, the enemies of God react. They stand in a circle and ask each other, what should we do with these guys? What should we do with these rebels? They huddle up and plan and plot and scheme various means by which they can make us be quiet, stop proclaiming Jesus. You see, they can't understand why we insist on our faith. Why, like Paul, we would decide to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they'll call us all sorts of stuff, right? They'll call us crazy people. They'll call us religious fanatics. And they'll say, why can't you just keep all of that to yourselves? Along with the devil himself, they would prefer someone like a, a Sunday morning only Christian who thinks he's done God a favor by showing up to church on a Sunday that wasn't Easter or by reading a few verses from a dusty Bible. You see, such a person, a person like that, they can easily separate they can compartmentalize religion from everything else he's got going on in his life so that the religion part doesn't mix in with everything else. So 
When someone like that, you know, don't talk to him about religion outside of church, right? You get mad. Have you ever tried to share your faith with someone who just wasn't having it? He looks around nervously. Maybe he has an annoyed look on his face. He seeks the first opportunity to change the subject to anything else. Quite the weather we've been having lately, huh? Right? And, and if that's unsuccessful, he, he's not able to change the, 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 the subject, the, the course of the conversation, just kind of blurt out something like, you know what, I'm not comfortable talking about this with you. Or stop shoving your religion in my face. Right? Have you ever heard things like that? So it's, it's people who, who just keep insisting these pesky, rebellious types of Christians who keep insisting that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and they want everybody to know about that. Those are the people that are problematic, right? The enemies of God cannot wrap their minds around why anyone on earth would be that way. In our passage, the Jewish leadership were confused why Peter and John would be that way. Paul writes about a person who does not have the Spirit of God and what it looks like. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from the Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. So the person without the Spirit of God cannot understand the things of God. It's like a foreign language to him. It's like gibberish to him. It's foolishness to him. But even worse than that, it's an offense to him. The mere mention of Jesus is enough to spark the most fiery of responses. He's saying the name Jesus. See, you can talk about a generic brand God all you want. You can talk about some higher power all you like, and no one's going to get upset about that. No one's going to fuss about that. No one will bat, a, bat an eye. No one will raise an eyebrow. But then you start saying Jesus. You mention the name Jesus. Well, there's something about that name. Romans 8, 7 says this, The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. So the hostility towards God plays out over and over again in episodes just like the one we read about in Acts. Hostility and aggression men have towards God is taken out on his followers. And this shouldn't come as a shocker to us, though, right? If you read your Bible carefully, you have enough heads up. Jesus himself predicted it. We read in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then in Matthew chapter 10, verses 22 through 25, we have something similar. It says, You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in the town, in one town, flee to another. For I tell you, 
For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more are the members of the household? So, as we see, anyone who decides to follow Jesus will be hated by the world. It's right there, plain and simple, right? If you act like the world, if you follow the crowd instead of following Christ, then you'll get high fives from the world. You'll get thumbs ups, thumbs up. You'll get likes on your, on your posts. You'll get heart emojis. You'll get all of that, right? But what does a prophet a man? Our proclamation of Jesus will cause us to be at odds with the enemies of God. It will cause us to be persecuted in some way, shape, or form. The Bible promises multiple times within its pages that we will endure persecution and we will receive hatred from the world. No fun, right? Jesus' words in John and Matthew tell us that if Jesus is our master and we are his servants, then we shouldn't expect any better than what he got. And as we all know, Jesus was nailed to a cross. He was crucified. So as men and women who represent Christ here on the earth, our swords will certainly cross the swords of the unbelievers. There's conflict. There's a clashing sound as blades collide. It's going to make noise, in other words. Uh, and, and some of those enemies that we encounter, they have blades that are heavy and deadly sharp and can separate heads from bodies. But fear not. We fear them not. To paraphrase Martin Luther, we tremble not for them. right? For the weapon that we wield is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can divide asunder, sword and spirit, even penetrate right down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Of course, the weapon I speak of is the Word of God, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. And it's the very weapon that Jesus struck back with when Satan sent his fiery darts toward the Son of Man. Jesus told the devil, it is written. So when it comes to conflict between the children of God and the soldiers of the enemy, uh, the person, each person on the planet needs to make a choice. Right? We need to pick a side in the battle because there's a line in the sand. So figuratively, a line in the sand refers to a limit, a boundary. You may go this far, but no further, or I'll suffer consequences. It is an ultimatum. So as we continue the story, verses 17 and 18 describe how Peter and John are told that a line has been drawn in the sand. Cross the line at your own peril, but either way, your rebellion will be squashed. So we reread uh, 17 and 18. These are the, uh, the men talking, uh, conferring with one another. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So the elite have put their heads together. They have devised an easy plan, an evil plan to rid the earth of any mention of the name of Jesus. With power and authority backing them, these religious leaders orders the rebels to stand down. Peter and John are forbidden 
from speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus. Peter and John are told to stop spreading what is viewed by the religious leaders as misinformation. Yes, this was censor censorship centuries before social media existed, right? Before big tech began silencing voices, we have the Jewish leadership using their power to try to prevent the hashtag good news from being proclaimed by Peter and John. It just goes to show that there's nothing new under the sun. What happened then happens now, and it plays out over and over again. So again, if we pay attention as we read our Bibles, we know that this is supposed to happen. The disciples, Peter and John, were, were right there. They were in attendance when Jesus spoke the following words as recorded in Mark. Chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to the local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me, as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So as we, as we go back to that scene with Peter and John standing before these big important men, perhaps those, these exact words were, were playing on loop in Peter and John's heads right before they, they, these, these important men who held their fate in their hands. Or so they thought they held their fate in their hands, right? So remember Pontius Pilate? He thought he held Jesus' fate in his soon-to-be-washed hands. So recall, as the crowds call for, for crucifixion, Pilate went over to question Jesus, and Jesus refused to answer him. Feeling frustrated, feeling disrespected, Peter reminded, I mean, Pilate reminds Jesus, I have the power to either release you or to crucify you. So likewise, the, the Jew, Jewish leadership right before uh, Peter and John, they, they thought they had the power uh, and the authority to, to release Peter and John or to put them back into prison, or even worse, right? In reality, neither Pontius Pilate nor the religious leaders had the power or the authority that they thought they had. As Jesus told Pilate, you would have... You, you would have no authority if it had not been given from above. So that's right. God has all the power and he has ultimate authority. No authority can overrule God and no mere mortal can come close to the omnipotent. So this is a helpful reminder that persecution that believers suffer is ordained by God. God is in control of that. And it's necessary for a greater purpose. You know what the verses in, in Mark say that, that are on the screen. It says that uh, Jesus' disciples would be handed over to stand before important and powerful people, governors, even kings. And the purpose of that? Being a witness for Jesus. To proclaim his name. To preach the gospel until it reaches every corner, every nook and cranny of the earth so that souls would be saved. So Jesus also tells his followers that their association with him would cause division even among close family members. Matthew chapter 10, reread his words, verses 34 and 30 through 36. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So as we believe in Jesus and we live like we believe in Jesus, it's going to rub people the wrong way. Back then, you can imagine Jewish, Jewish followers of Jesus coming home likely to disappoint the devout Jewish family member. What do you expect the reaction would be to a family member who decided to follow Jesus, a man claiming to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world? I doubt many were as well-received as Andrew and Philip were. If you remember the story, they encountered the Son of God and they ran over excitedly to tell their respective brothers, we have found the Messiah, come and see. So it probably didn't happen that way for everyone, right? Many disagreements, heated arguments might have taken place at the dinner table as people abandoned all to become the disciple from the disciple of the man from Nazareth. In the words of Nathaniel, Philip's brother, can anything good come from Nazareth? Surely many would have had these kinds of reactions thinking his brother or son or daughter-in-law was insane for this desire to follow a carpenter's son. And the truth of the matter is even today a man can acquire such enemies even in his own household because of his faith in Christ because of his insistence on being at church every Sunday or even midweek, because of Bible reading and daily praying, devotionals, because of a changed life. Because following Jesus is not a rebellious teenage phase, but it's a radical change in the course of one's life. So maybe this is your situation or this kind of familiar to you. Jesus has saved you and close family members and friends are bothered by your devotion to Christ. You might have been ordered or threatened in some way not to speak in the name of this Jesus. You might have had a line drawn in the sand before you. So the encouragement here is that, like I said before, God has ordained it and he has deemed it necessary in order to accomplish a greater purpose. We need to trust, and we need to trust God through it all. But one thing we cannot do, as difficult as it may be, one thing we cannot do is compromise. We can't downplay our devotion to Jesus for the sake of a friendship or a family tie. We can't pretend to love the things of the world so that the world won't be mad at us, so that we could fit in, so that they don't think we're weird, so that we can appear to be normal. But we cannot sit on the fence. We can't play on both teams, right? It doesn't work that way. Jesus boldly asserts that there is no middle ground, there is no neutrality when it comes to him. If we read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So at this point, I want to talk about uh, a, a grievous trend that I've noticed of late, and, and make sure maybe it's not even something that's recent. It's probably not recent since I mentioned before there's nothing new under the sun. Okay, what I refer to is is compromise that I've witnessed in modern American churches, not this one, 
I'll put that out there, not this one, but just at, at large, American church at large. Uh, and like I said, maybe it's not a recent thing, but it's, it's like a pattern that's repeated over and over again. Uh, if, you, if you've read the book of Judges, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, God blesses his people, and they enjoy prosperity. However, very soon the people forget the source of their blessing, and they turn to idolatry. So God punishes his people for their wickedness, and that causes them to cry out to God for salvation. Save us. And God, being the merciful God that he is, he does just that exactly. And once the people are comfortable again, then they compromise, and they worship the gods of the peoples around them. And the pattern continues. Does that sound familiar? Right? So back to the point. Um, so have you noticed how many churches across the country are compromising to be friends with the world? under the guise of being loving and inclusive. If you hear the word inclusive, that's kind of like a red flag for you. And, and, and these churches claim to follow Jesus, but they're adopting views and practices that are in contradiction with the word of God, especially this month. I'm sure you're aware of what this month is, right? Churches have joined retail stores and big companies in displaying rainbow this and rainbow that, and celebrating, quote-unquote, pride, churches are doing this, right? They hold special events and send out tweets on, about how affirming they are, and yeah, that's, they're being loving just like Jesus is, right? I won't go into detail on the subject, because that's not where I want to go, but the point is that the compromise in churches these days is common to a troubling degree. And this pride thing is just one glaring example of it. Siding with the world, according to, to the verse, puts one at odds with Jesus himself. If you are not with him, you are against him. If you are not working for him, you are working against him. Plain and simple. The idea uh, of those who have compromised is that they want to be friendly to the world. The problem with that is the world does not want to be our friends. The world does not want to be our friends. They are our enemies, right? The enemies of God do not want to be our friends. They want to destroy. They want to be like the religious leaders of Peter and John's day, and they want nothing more than to stop Christianity from spreading. They would like nothing more than to eliminate the salt and light from this earth so that we can rot in darkness. So our proclamation of Jesus will cause us to be threatened in some way, shape, or form, by the enemies of God. And as we have seen as we study history, the enemies, the enemies of God will stop at nothing. They will use any means necessary to stop Christians from proclaiming Jesus. So a hill to die on refers to an issue one will defend at all costs. It is a cause one is willing to fight for no matter what. If anybody has a teenager, you know that every issue is a hill to die on, apparently. Or you doesn't even have to be a teenager. Toddlers do that too, right? Anyways, for Peter and John, the hill that they were willing to die on is the message about Jesus. As we read verses 19 and 20 from Acts chapter 4, we will note the all-out commitment the two men have for the cause of Christ. It says, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in your sight for us to listen to you 
Rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So in other words, Peter and John are saying, we ain't listening to you. We defy your orders. You can threaten us, you can jail us, you can kill us, but we will not back down. We can't help but to speak about what we have seen and heard. So remember, Peter, this is, kind of, this is quite the contrast from the fearful disciple we read about in the Gospels. The very same man who denied knowing Jesus three times is willing to die on this hill. Peter, who says, I don't know him, I wasn't with him, is now boldly proclaiming Christ without regard for the consequences. And Peter's boldness speaks to us, echoing millennia later in America. Each day the world and the enemies of God scream at us to obey them rather than to obey God. And each day we have a choice. Like Joshua to the Israelites, choose this day whom you will serve. And may we, along with Joshua, declare, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So it shouldn't matter what they say, what they threaten to do to us, what they might entice us with. Jesus stresses to his followers in Mark chapter 8 the commitment involved in being a follower of his. Verses 34 through 36. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? So when Jesus talks about taking up your cross, he's not referring to a difficult situation in your life, your, your cross to bear, right? He's not talking about that. He's not talking about giving up something or enduring something unpleasant to score a few points with him. He's not talking about that. It's not some burden that you need to carry, some bad hand that you've been dealt. It's not those things. Taking up a cross means you are going to die, right? That's the shocking thing that the disciples, the people standing there, that's what they would have understood as they listened to these words of Jesus. He's saying quite clearly if you don't, that if you are to follow him, you need to be willing to go all the way. Commitment to Jesus is the hill to die on. And then in the verse, it's very paradoxical because it says we need to lose our lives in order to save our lives. We need to understand that life is more than the time that's between our first and last breaths on earth. Life extends infinitely into the future direction. So if we lose our lives for the sake of Christ, we're not losing much of anything in the grand scheme of things, right? We lose nothing compared to what we gain. In fact, we could gain the whole world and everything in it, but that would be a really bad trade if it costs you your soul. If you're willing to sell Jesus out for what would be pocket change, you, you don't do any better than Judas, right? Peter and John knew this. If we turn back to the Old Testament, we read about Daniel's friends, and they, they knew this too. In Daniel chapter, chapter 3, we read about it. 
This is uh, King Nebuchadnezzar speaking to uh, the three uh, young Hebrews. It says, Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? It's talking, it's talking big game right here, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know as king, uh, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the statue you set up. So here we have King Nebuchadnezzar, and he brings the three rebellious Hebrews right in front of him, and he gives them a chance. He gives them one last chance to fall down before his statue and worship it. This was the ultimatum, right? This is the line in the sand. Worship the statue or be thrown into the fire. This was the hill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to die on. Under no circumstances were they going to bow down and worship the golden image, even under the threat of death. And Nebuchadnezzar, he was not bluffing, right? He, like Pilate and like the Jewish leadership, uh, had the power and authority to follow through with the threat. You know how the story goes. That's exactly what he did. The men were thrown into the furnace, but miraculously they were protected by God from the flames, and they walked out of the furnace unscathed. Now going back to the response that we see on the, on the screen, it, the, the men... The young Hebrews, they did not know ahead of time that God was going to save them. They had no idea. They said that God could save them. Not necessarily, not necessarily that he would save them. Yet they defied the king's orders nonetheless. And they were willing to be burned to death. They would rather die than to obey the king because obedience to God was that important to them. And it should be that important to us as well. So if we read on in Acts, we see another example. We come to the story of a man named Stephen. Acts chapter 6, we read about when his sword crossed with the enemies of Christianity. Acts chapter 6, 8 and 9. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both uh, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from I didn't get that word, and, and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. Verses 10 and 12, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking, and they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and so they came and seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. So Stephen defied the Sanhedrin and refused to stay quiet about Jesus. If you continue to read in Acts chapter 7, the majority of the chapter is Stephen's sermon. And in that sermon, he indicts the Jews 
for their disobedience to God. They were, in fact, the true rebels because they were rebels against God. In fact, any person who would disobey God lives in rebellion and is an enemy of God. And this is bad news for all of us because all of us have sinned. All of us have disobeyed God. We're all rebels. But then we have the good news, of course, right? The good news is that God makes friends out of foes. He makes children out of the rebels. And then he empowers us through his Holy Spirit to be able to stand for him, just like Peter and John did, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just like Stephen did. So our proclamation of Jesus will require us to be defiant of the enemies of God. And if you know the story, this chapter of Acts in, in chapter 7, it concludes with Stephen's martyrdom. He was stoned to death by an angry mob. Why God, to cho- why God chose to save Daniel's friends from the fiery furnace, but not Stephen, that, that we, don't, we don't know. That, that's not known to us. And only God knows why. But the, point, but the point is that all of these men that we, we discuss, they were willing to face death for their faith. And, and to kind of wrap this up, I'd like to share with you uh, one of the highlights of a conversation that we had. It was actually last week in youth group. Um, so if you've ever done youth group or even listened to one of those guys talk, you know that conversations can, can range from uh, extremely silly to, to very serious, right? And, and they can go from silly to serious to silly to serious like, like that in a moment. But th- this conversation was definitely in, in the serious category. Uh, we were discussing what we would do if someone held us at gunpoint and threatened to pull the trigger unless we denied Christ. So this was actually brought up by, by one of the boys. And uh, he said, and, and this is great, right? He said that he would rather take the bullet than deny Christ. And he said he, he hoped he would have the strength and, and the courage to do it because, you know, and he even said, it's easy to say that you would do this or that when there was, there's no real threat standing right in front of you. It's easy to say that, uh, but, but talk is cheap, right? And, and for myself personally, I would like to believe that I would take the bullet rather than to deny, to deny Christ. Uh, but if, the, if it came down to it and, and the threat was real, uh, you know, what, what would I do? And what would you do? I, and I think that's something that each of us needs to kind of ask ourselves. And it's, I think it's an important uh, that every person who calls himself a Christian uh, does this, this kind of thought experiment. Uh, because our proclamation of Jesus is without a doubt the hill to die on. Because our Savior took up a cross, went to a hill to die on. Jesus took up a cross and he died on a hill called Calvary. And he did it for us to save us from our sins and the punishment that we rightly deserve. He took up the cross, and he took on our sin. So to kind of recap, uh, we proclaim Jesus despite the conflicts that may arise, despite the, the threats that, may, that we may re- receive. We defy the enemies of God who might try to stop us from proclaiming Jesus, no matter the cost.
at the Freight Church. Lord God, we, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for um, what we learn in the book of Acts, Lord, and, and the, the disciples who were, you just made them so bold and, and empowered by your spirit, Lord, that they were willing to, to face anything, Lord. Uh, they were willing to uh, do anything to proclaim Jesus the Savior, Lord, so that men and women can come to Christ and be saved, Lord. Lord, may that be our heart. May that be our attitude, Lord, that we would be willing to do just crazy things to, to reach people with the gospel, to reach people with the good news, the only thing that, that can save a soul from death. Lord, we thank you for, for just giving us these examples in your word over and over again, Lord. And Lord, may we be so bold to be able to stand up to whoever may oppose us, whoever may oppose you, and say, no, Jesus is King of kings. Jesus is Lord of lords. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Let us be bold and unashamed about it, Father God. So let this this message, Lord, the, the, these, these words that you have given, may, may it just penetrate into our hearts and, and stay with us as we leave this place, as we go to uh, wherever we go uh, tonight, tomorrow, uh, the rest of this week, into next week. Lord, may we just think on these things and just be thankful, Lord, for what you've done, what Jesus has done, because he took up the cross on Calvary and we were the hill that he was willing to die on. Thank you, Lord, we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.